Grand. Well, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along to this uh, session on uh, dissecting Dawkins' defence of uh, the God delusion, uh, the famous uh, new or neo-atheist uh, polemic that he came out with in 2007. So now he's brought out a 10th uh, uh, anniversary edition. I was just uh, looking it up on uh, Amazon, and you can see it here, 10th anniversary edition, and uh, it's well within uh, the, t the, uh, the 2,000 top-selling books. It's number one under the category of agnosticism and atheism, number two under books on philosophy of uh, religious and spirituality books, number two under books on science and religion. Uh, so although this uh, in bulk has been out there for a long time, it is still uh, being a hugely influential opinion shaper uh, in Western culture. Dawkins has written a new uh, foreword, a new introduction uh, to his book in which he defends himself against what he sees as the, the primary critiques that have been lodged uh, against his book. And he begins by talking about what he calls the God temptation the God temptation. He says, it's the temptation to evade by invoking a designer the responsibility to explain. Um, and we'll unpack more this idea of his that uh, saying that there's a designer such as God who explains things about the universe uh, does no such thing in his opinion. But I think we can already see here a kind of uh, begging the question on his part against the whole notion of there being a designer or indeed a god. I mean, if there is a designer, then to appeal to design uh, precisely is to offer a true explanation, one that uh, advances your knowledge over not knowing that. Um, and yet uh, Dawkins calls this uh, the temptation that we need to avoid from the beginning. Well, what is uh, more specifically the, the problem with design that tempts us to this uh, non-explanation as he sees it? Well, Dawkins says that you and I and every other living creature are machines of ineffable complexity. Complexity of a magnitude to challenge credulity. And he defines what he means by complexity, which, uh, as a philosopher, I appreciate it when people define what they mean for me. So he says, complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction. The direction of seeming there's his philosophy keeping in again, seeming designed for a purpose. I think that actually Dawkins is here acknowledging the kind of thing that intelligent design theorists talk about under the rubric of specified complexity. Uh, that this type of complexity that is specified, and I'll unpack that again in a moment, uh, is a plausible indicator of genuine design. Indeed, in an op-ed for a Free Inquiry magazine a number of years ago, 
uh, from 2004, Dawkins wrote this about specified complexity. He says, specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that in the unique, the particular disposition or arrangement of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed about in a box is as improbable as a fully functioning, what he calls genuinely complicated, watch. But what is specified about a watch, what, what picks out or marks out the watch from all of the other arrangements of watch parts that you might get by shaking your box of bits about, what's specified about a watch, he says, is that it is improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. So there's this conjunction of improbability, which all of the arrangements of bits exhibit, but it's the conjunction of that improbability with this specific uh, function or pattern uh, that uh, is actually something that in our day-to-day experience uh, rightly tips us off to design. William Lane Craig gives a nice concrete example uh, of this when he's uh, introducing the notion of specified complexity and says, in addition to high improbability or complexity, they're basically the same thing, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. And when these two elements are present, we have specified complexity, which is a tip-off to design. So here's the example. He says, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and very highly improbable. It's one deal of cards out of all of the possible arrangements of cards of that number of deals from the pack. He says, but if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but that it's the product of design. So at an organic level, Dawkins talks about what we might call the organic design problem or temptation. He says every animal embodies a statistical complexity of detail. Uh, Every animal exhibits improbability in a non-random direction, in other words. That is, every animal exhibits specified complexity. Uh, He says the complexity, by which, of course, we know now that he means specified complexity, of the living body, indeed of every one of its trillion cells, is so mind-shattering to anyone who truly grasps it that the temptation to buckle at the knees and succumb to a non-explanation of, oh, design, is almost, almost overwhelming, he says. At a cosmic level, there's a, a temptation, a problem of design as well. He says the laws and constants of physics, the general structure of the cosmos, are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which eyes and peacocks and humans with their brains and so on can come into existence. Not just any kind of universe will do. 
if you want to have life. This is a fascinating quote from him. He says, it's almost as though you have to have faith that it really is only a trick. Faith that nothing supernatural has happened. And if you've read much Dawkins, you'll, of course, know that by faith, he thinks the word means blind faith. And that's all it can mean. So he's saying it's almost as though you just have to have blind faith that nothing supernatural has happened to explain these things. But, of course, he thinks it is a temptation to be avoided. It is a non-explanation. And he appeals to Darwin. He says, Darwin patiently tells us exactly how the trick of life works. It's cumulative natural selection. Well, it's interesting to see recently the atheist philosopher Michael Roos noting that we have today a vocal anti-Darwinian party consisting, somewhat surprisingly, not only of the evangelical Christians of the American South, you know, you'd expect it of that bunch, as far as he's concerned, but of some of today's most eminent atheist philosophers. So there is a sort of in-house atheist debate that we can point to here. It is worth noting. For example, the atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor says uh, he makes this distinction between uh, phylogeny, or the idea of common descent. That could be true even if adaptationalism, adaptation by natural selection, uh, isn't true. The classical Darwinist account of evolution as primarily driven by natural selection, he says, is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of what he calls perfectly reasonable biologists by which I'm pretty sure he means not religious ones, (laughs) are coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer be just taken for granted. Or atheist Thomas Nagel, in his uh, recent book Mind and Cosmos, which caused such a stir. Um, And you can see why, if you can note the subtitle there, it's a little uh, small on the screen, but the subtitle is why uh, the materialistic uh, uh, neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly... False. And this is from a prominent atheist philosopher. He says that the dominant scientific consensus, recognizing that it is the consensus, faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, which Dawkins appeals to, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution? How do you get life able to evolve in the first place? The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem. Indeed, so far as that question of of how do you get life able to evolve by natural selection in the first place... So far as that question of the origin of life goes, Dawkins' appeal to Darwinian natural selection is, of course, a complete red herring. 
As the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton puts it in his book. Could you explain this phrase? Uh, red herring, yes, sure. It's a phrase that uh, uh, philosophers use uh, to describe uh, a, 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 a sort of interesting, flashy idea that is a distraction from the real issue. Uh, it comes from the practice of um, in uh, trying to disrupt fox hunting. You might drag a smelly fish across the trail where the dogs are coming up as they're hunting the fox, and they'll go off after the after the smelly fish rather than getting to the fox, getting to the uh, uh, the fox. Yeah. So Monton says, however life arose from non-life, it didn't happen via the Darwinian mechanism of natural selection. Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even purport to explain how life came to arise in the first place. At the cosmic temptation level, Dawkins appeals to the the multiverse idea. He says the multiverse theory, that, that there are billions of universes having different laws and constants Uh, And, of course, we could only find ourselves in one of the minority of those universes whose laws and constants just happen by luck, by chance, to uh, enable our our evolution, our existence. Um, He's sort of giving himself more rolls of the dice in order to make getting the number he wants more likely, as it were. So you could sort of um, put his argument more formally like this at the cosmic level. He's saying, look, obviously, if, and notice the if, if there were enough different universes, then the admittedly specified fine-tuning, i.e. being life-permitting nature of our universe, wouldn't be complex, wouldn't be unlikely in its existence enough to justify making a design inference from it. So his second premise, in order to get to the conclusion that we can avoid invoking design, his second premise obviously has to be there are enough other universes with differently tuned laws and so on to make the specific nature of our universe not unlikely enough to invoke design. But this in red, flashing away here, what has he said to justify our belief in this premise? Hmm, interesting. Um, it's a little bit like the question of monkeys and Shakespeare. You know this, uh, this old analogy of uh, if you gave enough monkeys, enough typewriters, and uh, long enough typing away randomly, they'd eventually produce the complete works of Shakespeare just by chance. Uh, well, okay, let's just grant for the moment that if... X number of monkeys, however many you'd need, uh, existed for long enough with enough typewriters and enough paper and so on, then they could, by chance, type out the complete works of Shakespeare. But when I show you a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, why is it that none of you would think to yourself, ah, I see, there must be a heck of a lot of monkeys somewhere. Anyone faced with the the many monkeys 
ex hypothesis as an explanation for a book uh, is going to ask this question. Is there any independent evidence for the existence of the monkey typing pool <laughs> that you're referring to? And if there's no independent evidence, then they are actually quite rationally going to prefer the single author explanation over the many monkeys explanation. They're going to invoke design rather than chance. Well, I think it's the same with the fine-tuning and the multiverse. And indeed, agnostic Jim Holt notes that since other universes are by defin definition not directly obs observable by us, uh, the burden of proof here is clearly on those who want to claim that other universes exist. He's saying they do owe us that independent evidence before they can start appealing to them as a get-out-of-jail-free card for the design temptation. Theoretical physicist Brian Greene, I'm going to uh, quote uh, just a handful of non-Christian scholars on this, because that's great to do in apologetics. Uh, it doesn't uh, allow people to say, well, of course, they would say that they're biased, they're on your side. These guys uh, are not biased because of their religious beliefs. So Brian Greene says people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there is no evidence supporting their existence. Uh, so he said that in 2016. In his recent best-selling book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, uh, theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli says, I see no reason for rejecting a priori, um, that is, uh, without experience, the idea that there is more in nature than the portion of space-time we see. He's saying, well, maybe there could be. I suppose there could be other universes. But I haven't seen any convincing evidence so far. In the September 2016 edition of New Scientist magazine, which is hardly a hotbed of, bed of uh, fundamentalist, evangelical, uh, American scepticism about design... Uh, Stuart Clark and Richard Webb talk about multiverses and they say that the difficulty here is how you get convincing evidence for the existence of any of them. And indeed they caution that by allowing every possibility besides the one you're probing to play out somewhere in the multiverse, science robs itself of its predictive power. Um, if you are going to just allow multiverse upon multiverse to exist, such that any arrangement of anything becomes not unlikely, then, you know, what need to explain anything at all in a scientific fashion beyond saying, well, I guess anything's likely to happen somewhere. We just happen to be in the universe where this is what's happened. There's loads of other universes where it didn't. <laughs> uh, so it's not surprising that it should happen somewhere. Might not this appeal to multiverses actually uh, cause trouble for the whole process of doing science itself? And in uh, April 2017, so just this last month, uh, Peter Voigt, uh, interviewed by Scientific American, said this, the problem with such things as multiverse theories is the multiverse did it is just not, not just untestable, 
but an excuse for failure. Instead of opening up scientific progress in a new direction, such theories are designed to shut down scientific progress, this same concern, uh, by justifying a failed research program. Dawkins, uh, in the, uh, the bulk of The God Delusion, the original, uh, he appeals to Lee Smolin's theories uh, that have a sort of cosmological analogy to Darwinian evolution. Uh, he has this idea in which universes give birth to daughter universes, uh, which have mutated laws and constants that give birth to daughter universes with mutated laws and constants and so on. And this, ha- I don't know the detail of this, but this is meant to happen through the production of black holes. Well, I'm going to take these points in reverse order because I think they make better sense in reverse order, but William Lane Craig points out that these speculations about universes uh, begetting baby universes, daughter universes, via black holes, according to him, and he tends to know his stuff in this area, he says that idea has been shown to contradict quantum physics. But also, he says a fatal flaw in, in Smolin's whole evolutionary cosmic scenario is his assumption that universes that are fine-tuned for black hole production uh, would also be fine-tuned for the production of stable stars. And that assumption in, his, in the background of his theory has been shown not to be true. Uh, indeed, the most proficient producers of black holes to, so say, spawn these other universes, would be universes that generate primordial black holes prior to star formation, uh, so that life-permitting universes would actually be weeded out by the cosmic evolutionary scenario that Smolin puts forward. So it's a kind of uh, self-defeating as a theory, according to Bill Craig. Who also points out this interesting uh, argument that is really borrowing from Roger Penrose, as we'll see. Uh, Craig puts it this way, and I've uh, put this uh, lovely picture of the observable universe uh, up here, and a picture of our solar system to illustrate this point. Craig points out that if, if our universe were just one member of a sort of randomly ordered bunch of other universes then it is vastly more probable that we should observe a much smaller universe, a much smaller area uh, of stability in which life can exist than we actually do observe. Because obviously the existence of a small area of stability capable of supporting life is much, much more likely than the existence of such a huge area of life-permitting stability. Roger Penrose, in his most recent book, uh, Fashion, Faith and Fantasy uh, in the New Physics of the Universe, uh, puts it like this. He says, consider how ridiculously cheaper, in the sense of improbabilities, it would be to simply produce, by mere random collision of particles, the entire solar system, with all of its life ready-made, or even just a few conscious brains... Maybe just by the random collision of particles, by luck, a few brains would pop into existence, uh, connected to some eyeballs on stalks, maybe. And these two brains would look at each other and go, oh, look, another brain. 
just by the random collision of particles. Well, if you've got enough random stuff going on, anything is going to happen somewhere. But that little bit of life happening just by chance is much, much more likely than the existence of the solar system, let alone our universe. Uh, so the problem is, says Penrose, why did we not come about in that way rather than from an absurdly less probable Big Bang and all of the uh, huge history of the universe and so on? It seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of this bubble universe, this multiple universe idea. And indeed, again, recently in New Scientist, February 2017, Sean Carroll, an atheist cosmologist that Bill Craig has debated, you can look it up on YouTube, uh, has an article in which he says uh, he's arguing uh, that we should reject universes that lead to cosmic brains. We should reject theories of the cosmos that have the implication uh, that cosmic brains are popping into existence somewhere. Indeed, if that, if that is likely on your hypothesis, you could point out that, um, of course, it's quite likely that some of those brains might be under the delusion that they're existing in a really large universe that's stable and, and so on. It's, it's like putting yourself into the matrix with no way of testing whether you're in reality or not. Um, so again, it starts undermining your confidence. And can we really trust our observations and do science? Agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis says that these multiverse myth theories also, they merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse because under any physical theory of multiverses, there has to be a finely tuned universe-generating mechanism. There has to be some sort of sausage machine spitting out a whole load of sausages with slight differences in them. But to pop out lots of different universes, that mechanism itself has to be, in a sense, finely tuned. Why doesn't it just pop out a whole load of carbon copies of the same lifeless universe? And questions like this. So you're only kicking up the problem a stage rather than solving it. This is where Dawkins has to start getting philosophical. And uh, in uh, our last little section here, I will try and show why uh, he fails, even here, uh, outside of his territory, uh, to uh, rebut this design <coughs> temptation. Just appealing to the science doesn't seem to do it for him. Let's go with his philosophy and see how he does. Well, his key point is this. He says, the designer himself that you're appe appealing to in order to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex, statistically unlikely entity of the kind that we've been explaining. And, and in turn, that designer would then need the same kind of explanation. As he said in the first edition of The God Delusion, God would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the entities he's supposed to explain. This argument, says Dawkins in his new introduction, remains intact and is inescapably devastating. Mm, we'll see about that. 
So we could try to translate what he's saying here and, and say, in other words, he's saying if you explain the existence of anything with reference to the existence of some other thing that also needs an explanation, then you produce an explanatory regress, and that's a problem. Well, yes, you, you do produce a regress, but what is the problem here meant to be? Well, he says, if you're trying to explain something improbable, specified, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. Really? Um, let me give you a counterexample. Um, here is a portrait, self-portrait, by the artist Rembrandt. Do you think we make an explanatory advance if we explain this very complex specific pattern in the painting in terms of the yet more complex existence of Rembrandt? I think the answer to that question is obviously yes. You would, you, would, you would understand this painting less if you didn't know about the existence of artists or Rembrandt in particular and his style and so on and so forth. In order for an explanation to be the best explanation of something, says Bill Craig, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation. Indeed, such a requirement would generate an infinite regress so that everything becomes inexplicable and science becomes impossible. But perhaps Dawkins is confusing an explanatory regress with an infinite explanatory regress, and that's the idea that that's meant to be the problem, that this appeal to design would generate an infinite explanatory regress that would never stop anywhere. <coughs> well, I'd agree with him that an infinite regress is to be avoided. Uh, but I point out that while explaining A by B doesn't in itself entail an infinite regress, the assumption that for an explanation to be the best you have to have an explanation of it, well, that rule that he uses does generate an infinite regress. It's Dawkins that is invoking a rule that generates an infinite regress, but simply appealing to design to explain fine-tuning doesn't necessarily produce an infinite regress. Uh, perhaps Dawkins' use of the, the term suffice indicates the thought that, there, that no explanation that's complex in the sense of being unlikely and thus contingent could ever suffice as an ultimate explanation. Because, after all, all contingent, all contingent things need an explanation, and so specified complexity requires a design explanation. Uh, and infinite regress is to be avoided. Well, I'd agree again, but I'd note that although Dawkins has just unwittingly endorsed a version of the cosmological and the design arguments now, if that's what he's thinking, he makes the question-begging assumption that God, if he were to exist, can't be a necessary being rather than a contingent being, that God couldn't be a being whose non-existence is impossible. So Dawkins says, look, critics of my book, grasping at straws, have tried to deny that a God capable of designing something complex and thus contingent must himself be complex and thus contingent. 
That's like saying that if there's a God, he must be like the kind of being that you can create using these design-your-own-deity fridge magnets. That God is the sort of thing that's, that's made out of contingent, separable, rearrangeable parts whose arrangement have a, a statistical complexity or unlikeliness <coughs> to them. It is to beg the question against the idea that there could be a necessary creator. Well, Dawkins thinks he, thinks he has an argument to convince us that if there's a God, he must be complex. He says, look, God has to be clever enough to calculate the value of all these physical constants in the fine-tuning. You call that simple rather than complex? And God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers of billions of people. He must be almighty, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-singing and all-dancing, you know? Call that simple? That's not simple, therefore it must be complex. There's an ambiguity in the language being used at this point. Dawkins quotes Richard Swinburne, the Christian philosopher, who says that theism uh, suggests for its one cause, or its ultimate explanation, a person with infinite power, infinite knowledge, infinite freedom, and so on. And Dawkins interprets this as Swinburne saying that God is simple, for Swinburne, because there's only one of him. Yet that one God has enough bandwidth to listen to the prayers and praises of billions of people and so on. Dawkins has completely missed the point of what Swinburne is saying. It's not just the fact that there's only one God. It's that that God is simple in the sense of having infinite degrees of his qualities. Swinburne says a person couldn't be a person if he had zero degrees of power, knowledge, freedom, etc. But to suppose a finite limit to these qualities in a being is less simple than to suppose no limit. To suppose an infinite degree of these qualities bound together eternally is to postulate the simplest kind of person that there could be. And that's the sense in which Swinburne means God is simple. Swinburne's point isn't just that there's only one God, but the, the God who exists doesn't just have some power, etc. It's metaphysically simpler uh, to think of God like that than to think in terms of um, a being that one could ask of that being, well, why does God have only that much power rather than more or less? See, that's, that's more complicated as a theory. J. Wesley Richard notes that the doctrine of simplicity is principally the claim that God is not made up of parts, like the fridge magnets that we can rearrange. God is not composite in the sense of being made up of elements or properties that are more fundamental than God himself is. So making the claim that God is simple in that metaphysical sense does not entail that God doesn't have distinguishable properties or that he isn't a trinity of persons and so on. Indeed, the agnostic philosopher Anthony Kenny responds to Dawkins' argument that, well, God must be complex because he can hear all of these prayers and do this and do that and do the other in this way. He distinguishes complexity of structure, like putting the fridge magnets together in the right order, putting the four aces together in the deal of cards, complexity of structure from complexity of function. 
and he uses the illustration of an electric razor or a cutthroat razor. He says, look, an electric razor is much more complex in the statistical sense than the cutthroat razor. But you can use the cutthroat razor to do a lot more things with than you can use the electric razor. The electric razor is so specifically complex that it really only can do one specific job, and that is you can use it to shave your hair with. I suppose you could use it as a paperweight, but you can't use it for many things. The cutthroat razor, I can shave with it. I can open letters with it. I can probably cut bread with it. I can use it as a screwdriver. I can use it as a paperweight. I can do more things with it. Even though it's simpler in its form and structure, it has more that it can do. So showing, an argument showing that X does a load of stuff isn't an argument showing that X must be complicated in the sense of having a complex specificity to it. Dawkins replied to Kenny when he made this point, and he said this, I really don't see what you're saying. Well, as Thomas Nagel, atheist philosopher, says, He's saying this, God is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. That's not what we're talking about when we invoke God as, a, as a, a, the best explanation for design in the universe. Must God be complex rather than simple? None of Dawkins' observations is an argument showing that to fulfill his job description, as it were, God must be complex and not simple in the relevant sense of complexity. Dawkins thus equivocates, means two different things, uh, over the term complex and simple. And he's, he's trading on that ambiguity to hide uh, his uh, flawed uh, argument. He's begging the question underneath that ambiguity against the idea that God could be a metaphysically simple, necessary being who does halt the explanatory <coughs> regress that you get uh, from saying A needs to be explained in terms of B and, well, you, I don't think you should go on forever. Um, but the only way to stop going on forever, in a sense, is to invoke something that can produce specified complexity but doesn't itself exhibit specified complexity in that same sense. And that's what the traditional concept of God gives you. So, think of it this way. If Dawkins had written a book called The Contingent God Delusion, he would have sold a lot fewer copies. <laughs> Dawkins' attempted rebuttal of the design argument the design temptation, uh, does not, I think, remain intact, as he says. It has, I think, been subjected to inescapably devastating criticism uh, by folks like William Lane Craig and uh, John Lennox, who we have with us this week, and so on. As far as Dawkins shows, the, the apprehension of design, that is just kind of intuitively obvious to most or many people 
and which can be cashed out in much more uh, formal, uh, logical terms when we start using the analysis of specified complexity in intelligent design theory and then trying to give the best metaphysical interpretation to that theory, all of that, I think, remains uh, a good reason or intuition uh, at the, the popular level uh, to believe that there is indeed a creator of heaven and earth. <coughs> Marvellous. Thank you very much. I know I've launched a lot of different topics at you, a lot of different quotes and things. Um, of course, there'll be the video and the PowerPoint will be integrated uh, into that, and that'll be online. I've got the recording that I'm making as well that'll go up on my podcast uh, channel, which you can find through my website, peterswilliams.com, uh, and loads of other similar material. Um, but if you have any questions that you would like uh, to uh, ask, please do so. Yes, sir. I'd like to just add a comment, and that is Dawkins' understanding of multiverses is trash. The, the multiverse theory is totally unproven, right? You can't observe past your observable horizon anyway. Yeah. And the idea that you've got any other universes swimming out there mm. is totally untestable and belongs in the realm of uh, fairy tales or fantasy. You cannot test them. You can use the world's greatest telescopes. You can't observe them. They're outside of your observable horizon. They don't exist within our context of space and time. That is our first point. The second point is also a point you raise, and a very interesting one. The initial conditions of evolution. You cannot produce a cell by simply just uh, putting enough chemicals in a bottle and get it going. I had a detailed discussion about that with James Tor. Mm. who's a friend of Robbie Zacharias. And uh, so you cannot start the process. It's all very well about speaking about complexities, but you cannot get the process going. Yeah. And that is a key fatal flaw, which Dawkins never yeah. addresses. Yeah. But Daw I'm an astronomer, and Dawkins, and Dawkins' knowledge of cosmology is sick. <laughs> hey, let, me, let me repeat that for the purposes of the, the tape. Uh, thank you for the, those comments. Two comments from a friend of ours who's a, an astronomer yes. uh, and says that Dawkins, uh, as far as he's concerned, really doesn't understand yes. uh, the cosmological theories uh, and that there is no evidence of uh, other universes beyond our own. It's just a fairy tale, he right. says. And also reiterating the, the, the point that um, he had a conversation with James Tour, who's a, a, a nano uh, engineer, Correct. isn't he? That's and right. um, uh, gave, uh, you can find some very interesting lecture material from him again on, online on YouTube. Look mm -hmm. up James Tour. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the, the Pascal lectures. Exactly. Yes, uh, on the origin of life. Um, recommend that to folks to go and watch James Tour's Pascal lecture on the origin of life and nanotechnology and mm -hmm. things. And saying, just like that, that illustration I had of the watch parts, you know, uh, the, you put a load of watch parts into a box, shake that box, those watch parts are not going to fall by chance into the specific complex arrangement of a, of a timepiece by luck. And to say, oh, but Darwinian natural selection could help it get there, <laughs> um, that's, that's, uh, that's forgetting that in this analogy you need a working timepiece before you have something capable of undergoing 
natural selection. You need something with the specific complexity of information that it passes on that could be selected differentially by those forces before natural selection can get to work. Um, now, that's a whole other subject, but at, the, at this starting point, you cannot invoke evolution in that sense to explain the origin of something able to evolve in that sense. Talk about chemical evolution. Evolution there is being used, in, in, again, in an ambiguous and a different sense of the term, uh, just the, the hope that um, by chance you can get something able to evolve along, or maybe there's some sort of law of nature um, uh, that is built into the fabric of the world, like, a bit like the fine-tuning, that will produce something able to then evolve uh, and I think, as Michael Polony pointed out in the 60s, that's a bit like thinking you can explain a book by reference to the laws of uh, physics and chemistry of how ink sticks to paper. Well, you can see, yeah, at a certain level, that explanation is involved. But again, think of the fridge magnets. So if you know uh, alphabet fridge magnets, you need to know about the laws of magnetism to explain why the fridge magnets stick to the fridge. But those laws do not explain the order in which I have placed the letters to spell out the message, buy more milk. You know, the chemical forces do explain why the amino acids stay in the DNA helix. Uh, but there is no law of nature that guarantees that amino acids fall into the right order in order to program a thing that can produce all of the molecular machinery to be alive and thus capable of undergoing evolution in the first place. So thank you for, for those comments. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a bit disappointed that it didn't get any better in this, <laughs> this forward, but it was very interesting to hear that he says you almost have to have faith yeah. uh, that nothing supernatural has happened. Uh, and faith is defined as uh, belief without evidence right. in the delusion. So is he not at all uh, apologetic about this? Yes, yeah, so our friend is raising this, this, this issue about the quote that I had from Dawkins about him saying it's almost as if you have to have faith that nothing supernatural happened, given the background that we know that Dawkins himself says to have faith just means to have blind faith, unevidenced trust in something, and that he's against that. Um, now, as Christians, we can say, actually, that's not what faith is talking about, and we, we can equally say that uh, we're perfectly happy with having evidence for what you put your trust in, your, or who you give your allegiance to, uh, and so on. But we can leave that aside and say, yeah, that is a fascinating thing for him to say. And I guess his get-out clause is that he says, it's almost as if. But it, it, that he is recognising this temptation. It's, it, the weight of, when you really know the complexity of what's going on, the weight of that knowledge, he says, you know, almost forces you to your knees. Um, it is, it, it, he is... He is recognizing that he's not in the dialectical position of saying, hey, there are some crazy people who believe in a god, uh, and I don't see why anyone would think that. That's, that's, that's not obvious uh, why anyone would think that, that at all. Um, that's, that just seems bizarre. Um, he's recognizing that the real situation is that, that, I think it's true to say most people, even today and certainly historically speaking, have just looked at the world and, and gone, 
wow, there must be some kind of supernatural creative someone, something, someone's responsible for this. There's intelligence. I can just see the intelligence coming through this world around me. There's got to be more to the world than just the world. Uh, and given that apparent appearance of things, that, that deeply held intuition, it, it's those who want to say, I know, it's, it, I know, yes, it does seem that way, but here's why you should, you should think you're actually wrong about that, that that's an illusion. Back to the Matrix. It's a bit like in, in the Matrix, uh, when uh, Morpheus comes up to Neo, uh, played by um, Keanu Reeves, and says... Uh, I know it looks to you like you're in living a real life in a real world, but actually it's all an illusion, a delusion foisted upon you by our robot computer overlords. Um, well, yes, you know, Neo has to say to him, well, it's, it's your job to convince me that that's true, that that conspiracy theory of reality is true. <laughs> uh, I don't have to sit here and convince you that the world is real. You have to sit there and convince me that it's not. Now, of course, in the movie, Morpheus is able to do that. You're, you're, you're genuinely open to saying, well, okay, prove me wrong. But they do have to prove you wrong. It's not your job to prove that you're right in situations where it is just so overwhelmingly intuitively obvious that I really am in this room with other people. You're not all really complicated animatronic robots created by ILM to deceive me into thinking I'm giving a lecture here. You know, I suppose I suppose that's theoretically possible. Uh, but, you know, but anyone who who wants to convince me that that really is true, I'm going to say, yeah. What's the evidence, mate? You know, what's the evidence for the infinite monkey pool? <laughs> What's the independent evidence for the multiverse? What's the evidence that I'm wrong in this intuition? And it seems from those kind of quotes that, that an atheist like Richard Dawkins really recognises that that's the dialectical situation that we're in. And that's a step forward, maybe. Yeah. Is he almost acknowledging that his atheism is a, a conviction that he holds before he does anything else? Well, he, he, did, he did use almost and temptation and so on. He thinks he, thinks he has reason not to follow that appearance that's good enough to avoid it. Uh, and I think we can show, uh, as I've attempted to in this talk, uh, that uh, he's wrong about that. <laughs> uh, and uh, I will simply present the arguments and let the, the audiences that see this, listen to it and so on, uh, make their own minds up on the matter. Yeah. If uh, Dawkins is so manifestly wrong in what he says, and even his fellow atheists are sometimes ashamed of what he says, mm. is there an explanation why he sticks to it? Is there a psychological explanation? Is he? Is he mm. Right, so this is a question about, given that it seems, uh, when you think about it carefully, so sort of patently obvious that Dawkins is wrong, in what he thinks is a really knockdown argument against this design temptation, given that even fellow atheists think that his argumentation doesn't work. They presumably think they have other better arguments, but they think his argument doesn't work. Um, and you, you quoted the line that uh, they are ashamed 
uh, uh, Richard Dawkins makes them ashamed of atheism kind of thing, that this, oh, you know, face palm. Like we Christians may do at the behaviour of some other fellow Christians that we think, oh, good grief, is, is that the representation of Christianity that some other people are getting? Good grief. Um, I think that was a quote from Michael Roos uh, that he put on the front cover of Alistair McGrath's uh, book uh, in response to the new atheism that uh, Dawkins makes me ashamed to be an atheist and, and Alistair McGrath shows why, I think was the, was the whole quote. Um, so what can we say in terms of, well, why does Dawkins stick to his guns then? Is there a psychological reason and so on? Um, Maybe, but I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> and I don't have him on my couch <laughs> uh, uh, in the psychology consulting room, and if I did, I wouldn't be able to share with you the results. Uh, and I think uh, it is best in apologetics to stick to critiquing ideas and arguments rather than people. Um, uh, and we don't want them to do the same to us and we want to treat others as we would wish them to treat us uh, and that is to stick to the ideas and the, the arguments and the evidence uh, and let other issues be resolved um, in their own sphere uh, but I don't think apologetics is really the sphere in which to address that issue mm, thank you yeah yeah uh, can you explain again um, the thing with the multiverse? Um, you said that we should prefer the God hypothesis before the multiverse. Yes. Because of we, uh, we don't have experience of many monkeys typing. Mm, mm. It's like Occam's racer. Yes. So this is this is a question about the the why should we prefer the one designer over the many universes? Explanation. And I gave this analogy of to explain a book. Why do you prefer the one author hypothesis over the the many monkeys with many typewriters hypothesis in the absence of any actual evidence that there are enough monkeys to produce the results you're looking at? Any evidence that there are enough other universes with different laws to reduce the improbability of finding a universe with our specific structure? Um, is Occam's razor? Uh, kind of in the background there, the sort of explanatory principle that if you've got multiple competing explanations for some data set, uh, if they would... Um, they're all good explanations in the sense that they would all explain the data if they were true, but if one of those explanations is simpler than the others, then you should go with the simpler <coughs> adequate explanation. Uh, and you can see the sense to that rule in as much as there's really a, a potential infinity of possible exp explanations of increasing complexity for anything you want to, to point at. Um, so it, 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 you've got to settle on, on something as the, the best explanation uh, without being diverted by the fact that there's a potential infinity of explanations that could do the job uh, and so Ockham's Razor says, yeah, pick the, 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 the simpler one. Um, I'm not sure of the relationship there. Uh, I think the analogy of the, the book and the monkeys kind of makes its, its own justification of, of the point of, of uh, in order to go against the 
even the intuitive appearance of something being designed, and especially when we analyse it in terms of the specified complexity, which we know by experience, events that exhibit specified complexity where we know their origin invariably track back to an intelligence. Um, books, music scores, computer code, all sorts of examples could be uh, enumerated inferentially there. And so in such situations, you're, you're really saying back to that dialectic of, I know it looks like, or I know you have evidence for design, but actually you should not follow that evidence. You should, you should go with this other idea. Uh, it's not enough in that situation simply to say, I have a random hypothesis that if it were true would also explain the data, but that doesn't involve, you know, your explanation, because I don't like that. You've got to go further than that, and the the, the further you need to go is to say, um, I have this other explanation that doesn't involve intelligence or God or whatever, um, that is simpler in the sense of it only involves material things, to explain other material things, you might say. Uh, But why should I... Believe that simpler explanation. The crucial thing is because it's more, it's it's also adequate. It's a simpler, adequate explanation over your admittedly adequate but more complex explanation. Um, but to show that it is an adequate explanation, you can't just say if this were true. You have to show that it's that there's independent evidence for it. And I think that that book, Monkey's Analogy, kind of shows, uh, shows that there. So I, I hope that gets it, gets it in a bit. Can, can you say that, the, the, that there, is, um, there is positive evidence against them, the multiverse? Ah, now, this, this is interesting. So the question is, is there positive evidence against a multiverse? Well, that's what um, uh, Roger Penrose and Bill Craig were talking about when they say, on the assumption that we are part of a multiverse that just happens by luck to enable our existence, um, you would predict that we would be observing a much smaller and therefore more probable uh, region of life-permitting stability than we actually do observe um, if, we were, if we just happen to be in a random life permitting member of this whole random series of universes some of which permit life many of which don't and of the ones that do permit life of course some have smaller regions than, than others but the smaller region ones are more probable <laughs> so we should expect the observation of say something like the planet, the solar system, um, or I'm, I'm just a brain floating about with my eyeballs on stalks looking at myself, as Roger Penrose talks about. Um, Boltzmann brains, physicists call them after Boltzmann. Um, but since that's not what we observe, that, does un- that is counter-evidence to the multiverse theory. That's what Craig, following Roger Penrose, uh, is is arguing, yeah. Just one thought, I have to run, but why has Dawkins never debated an astronomer? Well, 
why has Dawkins never debated an astronomer? I'm of course, know. I mean, Dawkins is a, a zoologist by training. That's right, so you should stick to zoology. <laughs> <laughs> not multiverse. <laughs> right. um, uh, and to avoid the fact that that, I, that I'm not an astronomer either, <laughs> and neither is Bill Craig. Uh, so, I'm, but uh, Craig and I are um, philosophers, and philosophy is the discipline that deals with the foundations of all the other disciplines. Uh, so you have the philosophy of science, the mm. philosophy of history, the philosophy of etc., uh, and logic, of course, which is an area of philosophy. Logic is central to any intellectual. Discipline. You can't do science without knowing about how arguments should work. And, and so, at the very least, I can claim, although I'm not an expert in the science that Dawkins mentions, I'm self-taught, I'm reliant on other authorities and experts in that field, as is Dawkins when he's talking about cosmology. I am an expert in how arguments can fail and go wrong and spotting when someone is pulling a fast trick by using an ambiguity of language or when they're begging the question uh, or when they have given an argument uh, where the, yeah, the conclusion would follow if the premises were both true but notice that he hasn't really given us any reason to believe that the premises are more plausible than the denial. And this, this is the kind of thing... That, that having an introductory course or knowledge of, of logic brings to all sorts of things in life, whether it be being a philosopher or being a scientist, an astronomer, or being a, a preacher, uh, uh, exegeting and explaining the scriptures or, or what have you. So um, this is a marvellous opportunity for me to recommend to you the utility in the service of the kingdom of God of the study of a bit of logic and uh, rhetoric and so on, um, as indeed Paul uh, himself recommends in Scripture. Thank you very much for, for your comments there. Any, any last minute? If we, and what's our timing? We need to get these uh, handouts filled out, of course. But uh, yes, yes. I just read that um, Dawkins' premises are an example of scientism, and you didn't mention scientism, and I'm just yeah. wondering if this. A reason for that? Uh, yes, yeah, so the uh, question is that I didn't uh, mention scientism, uh, which is a view of knowledge, a theory of knowledge that Dawkins subscribes to. And it's the, the view that, that, briefly put, says you know, the only way to know anything is through science. Science gives us only reliable <coughs> knowledge of, of anything and, and so on. Uh, I didn't crit critique that in this talk, but I have critiqued it in many other talks and books and things that I've written. Um, but there's a lot that I could critique about Dawkins, and there's more that I can fit into one 45-minute-hour uh, lecture. Uh, so, yeah, it, but it is well worth bringing up the issue that Dawkins makes this starting assumption um, that empirical scientific-type knowledge is the, the only reliable kind of knowledge that we can have. It's a very sort of narrow view of knowledge, and I think uh, there are plenty of counterexamples to it that could be given in moral and aesthetic knowledge and knowledge of logic, which one needs to do science. One knows about the law of non-contradiction uh, through rational intuition, not through experimental verification. Um, so um, there is a sort of self-contradiction 
at the very heart of how Dawkins thinks that we should know and go about giving arguments for things because he has a too narrow view of how we, how we would uh, claim to rationally know anything. Uh, it, in effect, he ends up saying um, the only reason to ever think that a, a truth claim is rational is if there's some evidence in its favour. Mm, okay, but why should I believe that the truth claim uh, evidence set B is real, reliably reported, and does indeed favour belief in conclusion A? Well, my belief in B, according to Dawkins' rule, would not be rational unless I have some evidence in its favour. Call that set C. But of course, I should not think that I'm rational in believing in C unless I have some evidence in it. And he's generating another one of those infinite regresses <laughs> that, as we explained earlier, uh, we want to avoid. And perhaps one way of interpreting uh, what Dawkins is saying is that he recognises that we want to avoid these uh, sort of infinite regresses. So, uh, yeah, that's a very interesting issue of Dawkins' scientism and the, the scientism and the new atheism uh, in general is, is something to be, be aware of. When you, when you talk about these topics, do you find a lot of um, hardcore fans of, of mm. the new, new atheism or has this diminished <coughs> over the years? Yes, so when I'm talking about this uh, or simply are there many hardcore fans of Dawkins and the New Atheism and, and so on. I think there still are. Um, uh, certainly in terms of, of, of media awareness, the, the first and indeed second wave of the New Atheism uh, is not the big news that it once was. But you can see that the fact that Dawkins can bring out a second edition of a book ten years on from its publication and just stick a new forward in it and an afterword by Daniel Dennett, and that it be selling so well on Amazon, uh, shows that he is still influencing many people. I don't think all of those sales are to evangelical philosophers wanting an exercise in deconstructing <laughs> bad arguments, although I'm sure a proportion of them are. Um, <laughs> The new atheism is incredibly influential, particularly upon students in the millennial generation. That generation that has recent discussion uh, has focused on this whole thing of where people get their information from, the information bubble provided by the, the media environment of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and so on. The influence of a YouTube video or a Twitter uh, meme uh, a shot picture with a little bit of writing that people retweet onto their friends and does the rounds. Um, people uh, believe what they're constantly told by authority figures. Uh, and we've also created a media environment that, allow, uh, that allows us more than ever to be sort of insular in the authority figures that we expose ourselves to. Uh, and so the number of university students who I think primarily because of the kind of new atheism and the way in which that movement uses the new media are, are of a mind to say, of course, everyone knows that there's no historical evidence that there was a real Jesus. Everybody knows that that's just a, a retelling of pagan corn myths, as 
C.S. Lewis himself once thought, but he did have the excuse that in his day that was the new uh, academic thing to think. Um, it no longer is, but people don't know that because they only, you know, they only get their information by reading Dawkins and Victor Stenger and, and Christopher Hitchens and so on. So, uh, yeah, there's an uphill struggle in, in, in that terms, but um, our calling as, as Christian evangelists and apologists and so on uh, is not to be successful, but to be faithful. Uh, and when we are faithful to that calling, uh, we should be encouraged by the successes. Uh, I know a Norwegian student who's here at the forum for the first time this year uh, because a few years ago, having come from an atheist background, he got interested in cosmology and became convinced of deism, that there was some kind of God, and got interested in watching a YouTube video by John Lennox discussing Big Bang cosmology and God, and through that uh, was shocked to find an academic saying, of course, there's historical evidence that there was a real Jesus, and he thought, oh, well, I better, I better investigate this. And uh, a number of, uh, I don't know exactly the period, but at least a number of years uh, later, that, that journey led him to become a Christian. And now he wants to be a Christian apologist and he's doing his uh, BA uh, in Norway and he's here on the apologetics track uh, at ELF. Um, so uh, the internet can be a tool for us as well. <laughs> Time is up. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.